Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by pro triathlete David McNamee. David is most well known for finishing on the podium in back-to-back years at the Ironman World Champs in 2017 and 2018. In Kona at the World Champs, breaking the eight-hour barrier for the race was for a long time talked about as, is this possible? Well, we now know that it is because four people have broken it. And David holds the fifth fastest time in Kona ever, 8.01.09, which is the closest someone has ever come to breaking eight hours without actually breaking it. I'm sure that's like frustrating in a way for David, but it illustrates the level of athlete he is. David, thanks for joining me, mate. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, thank you for the nice introduction. You know, it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of always nice to have a reminder of, yeah, what you've done. Hey, uh, going back to that 2017 year, like I'd, I'd known about you as an athlete and as a, as a triathlete before then, but I, I think to a lot of the triathlon world who aren't sort of obsessed with it, that was when they first really knew about you. That was sort of like your breakout performance in a way, that that bronze medal at the at the World Champs. And and even on that day, I think to a lot of people that came out of nowhere as the day progressed because it really happened in the run. Can you sort of take me inside that day and and maybe the build into that day and, and just talk to us about that that bronze medal performance? Uh, of course, yeah. So 2017... Yeah, I think, to be honest, the whole year was good. But I think I started off in South Africa, the African champs, and came third behind Ben Hoffman. And for me, that was sort of, that was, in my own personal terms, that was like my breakthrough performance. But yeah, obviously, it's not Hawaii. And then after that, I did quite a lot of European 70.3s and actually sort of won basically all of them. Uh, so I was having a great year going into Hawaii and yeah, I think sort of accumulation of sort of, it was just one of those years where everything sort of went right. Like I look back on it and, you know, you still check the training peaks and literally there was, I think for about maybe the four month run into Hawaii, there was no injuries, but there wasn't, I think I can remember one session that I would describe as it didn't go as planned. But everything else, it was like the perfect four months leading into that race. And yeah, I think I was, I did some training with Jan as well and Nick Castellan at that time, which I think it helped. I think it helped sort of confidence-wise, obviously training with someone of Jan's stature. But also I think I learned a couple of things, especially with regards to sort of recovery around training that gave me that sort of maybe that finishing touch that I'd missed in sort of the previous sort of edition for why. Yeah. With that year, I remember like following, like I, I follow triathlon pretty closely and that year I remember following the way you were going. And, and one thing I, that like, one thing that just stuck out to me that I kept thinking is Jesus, David's running well. I, I think like, I'm pretty sure that stretch you talk about where you run, you sort of won every uh, middle distance triathlon that you did um like you you at that time people weren't quite running as fast as as even what they are now five years on but but you were sort of running around that 110 mark for the half marathon and i remember um at at challenge challenge solau i think it was where you ran like 107 and i just remember thinking like fuck me david is on on this year and and sort of to me had come it had sort of come out like out of nowhere a little bit like I, i always knew you were a good runner but I didn't think you were that good. And I didn't think you were that good off the, the back of, you know, a 90K time trial. Um, so it wasn't really a shock to me when you started running through the field uh, finally at the end of the year at Hawaii. Yeah, I think 
Because I think a lot of people don't even realise that I came from an ITU background and when I did ITU racing, I could run like a 30-30 off the bike for the 10 kilometres. But that at the time was only good enough for like 10th or 12th place because like people like Alistair Brownlee, Javier Gomez were consistently running like 29-30. And this was all before Super Shoes, of course. I had a very good run standard, I'd say, going moving into Ironman in 70.3. It just took me a couple of years to sort of figure out sort of the distance. But even like the first year in Hawaii, I still had the fastest run split out of everyone. It was just because, well, I was so far back after the big that nobody really realizes. And you sort of talked about that that lead into Hawaii where you were training. Uh, I'm pretty sure you were in Girona at the time, weren't you, with, with Jan Fredino and, and like you said, Nick Castellan, uh, an Australian triathlete. Can you talk to me about how that, that came about and then, and then maybe take us inside the group? What kind of stuff were you doing in that 2017 year? Yes, yeah, so I've actually lived in Girona for, well, longer than anyone. I first moved, well, I first went to Girona for training in 2010, 2009, maybe. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I've moved, lived permanently in Girona for the last eight or nine years. I suppose it came around when Jan, Jan would come in the summer for four or five months. He was living between Girona and Australia. And yeah, when he came to Girona, initially... Uh, we'd swim together because, yeah, we just happened to meet each other at the pool and sort of Nick was also with Jan. So I think in 2016, we had like a little swim group and then that progressed to sort of when Jan and Nick came back in 2017, it was sort of, uh, yeah, it sort of progressed to doing some bike rides together and then some running. And yeah, for like, I would say initially, I was mainly more training with Nick because Jan was away racing and stuff. But then, yeah, I'd say for the, the two or three months leading to Hawaii in 2017, I was training with, yeah, we were training as a squad of three. And yeah, I would say, say the key thing that I sort of learned during that sort of time, I think in the past I'd been doing, I'd been doing similar sessions to what I was doing in 2017. But the key was that in the past, I was a little bit, I was insecure in that I could never give myself the recovery time to recover from the hard sessions. And I think that's something that sort of, to be honest, it probably was something that held me back during my whole career up until that point. And I'm talking like even ITU, sort of, yeah. But that was sort of, that was the, the key thing that I learned in 2017 was that it's all about the recovery between sessions. And so at that time, were you all coached by the same uh, coach or did you have different coaches and sort of would just make training work, you know, when you could, but, but would go off and do your own sessions, you know, not, not necessarily do the same sessions together? Uh, so in 2017, so Jan and Nick were getting coached by Dan Lorraine. And then I was getting coached by a friend, uh, Alex, who's a sports director for a cycling team. So he was guiding my cycling, but I was writing the, the swimming and running program. So that made things a lot easier uh, to sort of integrate with what Jan and Nick was doing. So yeah, I sort of basically just started doing the key sort of sessions with them. And yeah, thankfully with, well, my friend who was coaching me at the time was very much sort of, well, 
these guys, especially Jan, he's the best in the world. So you may as well stay with him and learn a lot. And yeah, there's a few times where I would do some slightly different things because it doesn't matter how good someone's program is. If you just copy it exactly, it's not going to be the perfect program for you. Uh, so yeah, that's sort of, yeah, it was sort of very easily, sort of to, very easy to integrate with what Jan and Nick were doing at the time. And you said that throughout that sort of uh, four-month block leading into Kona that that if you look back on your training peaks, it's it's almost like every session went to plan and you really didn't miss anything. Um, can you sort of talk to me about uh, when you're training with with guys of that standard? So Jan Fredino, who who pretty much everyone regards the the greatest to ever do it, um, is there a temptation to sort of push yourself a little bit too much in training and overdo it to try and keep up or to try and impress? Or in a group like that, is it sort of not very competitive and you're just all there to make each other better? Uh, I think I look back and I think sort of maybe sort of at that time I was sort of a lot more competitive in training than I am now. And I think Jan's obviously a super competitive guy. So I think we were always sort of on the borderline of maybe sort of pushing ourselves too much. Uh, yeah, like we all got on very well, obviously. But yeah, I think sort of at times, some sessions, we sort of, we were a bit too competitive. But yeah, it made both of us stronger. Uh, obviously, 2017 Kona just didn't go to plan for Jan for one reason or another. But yeah, I think when you're in a sort of that sort of environment, it's all about sort of keeping your ego in check. And I think maybe in 2017, both me and Jan weren't the best at that. But I think because it was for such a short period of time that it sort of, sort of, it was okay, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and so because you were such good friends and, and because it wasn't for that long period of time, were there ever times where it's so competitive that, you know, someone cracks the shits at someone or, you know, you have to go away and not train together for a few days because it gets a little bit too competitive or does it never quite go that far? No, I think so. You know, we're all adults. Uh, I think if there ever was an incident, it was sort of very quickly forgot about I think as an athlete, you have to sort of very much, as soon as the session finishes, that's it done. And what happened in the session, you have to sort of put it behind you and sort of, yeah, it's almost like the mentality you need for a session is very much the mentality that you do not need out with the sessions, if that makes sense. Yeah. And um, I guess sort of my last thing on this is, if you're doing like a really hard ride or a really hard run or, or a really hard swim with, with people of that caliber who, who you look at and can, and can identify, well, this person on their best day is probably going to win the world champs this year. And if you happen to sort of have a great session where you're feeling better than them and, and sort of maybe not dropping them, but you know, you're feeling as strong as them, does it fill you with confidence that, that you're going to have good races or, or is it, does it not really work like that? It doesn't, it doesn't. Like, it's always good to feel good in a session, especially sort of when you are training with such a high-caliber athlete. But, yeah, people's performances in training and racing are very different. I, For example, I was part of Joel Filio's training group for several years, and I was training with uh, Mario Mola was the star of the group at that point. 
Uh, he went on to be three-time world champion. But if someone who didn't know triathlon came to the group and watched his train for one week, and then afterwards was asked, so who's the guy who's the world champion in this group? They wouldn't have said Mario Mola because Mario had that ability to always keep it in control during training, but find that extra gear in racing. So that's the thing. It's sort of, I've seen it a lot over the years that you can get too sort of caught up in training performances of athletes because some people can race to a whole different level. Is um is Mario the the best example of that you've seen in your time in triathlon, or or if if he isn't, who's the best example of someone you've witnessed in the difference between how how well they race versus how well well they train? Yeah, I think sort of Mario is a great example. The other one was Richard Murray. I did some training with Richard Murray, and even like again, he was part of Joe Filio's group, and a lot of the time he would instead of doing the run sessions with the guys or the bike sessions with the guys, he would go and train with the girls because he just felt that's what he needed. Because, yeah, he always very much felt like if he tried and do too, tried and do too much intensity in training, that sort of he lost that racing ability. And he, was an, well, he still is an incredible athlete once the gun goes. Like, yeah, at one point he was probably the best runner in idea between him and Mario but you would go out for an easy run with him and just drop him because he would be going along a painfully slow, slow pace I'm talking I would do running with Richard and like we'd go in 515, 530 km pace and at some point I would just have to say sorry I, I just need to go faster So how does that sort of like um, balance work where you're training with guys like that you know particularly the, the Jan Fredino situation where you're training with him and, and it can be quite competitive. You, you said he's a really competitive um, guy and, and trainer uh, and definitely racer. And I, I sort of, I haven't asked, but I always get the impression that you're quite a competitive guy as well. Um, so how, how is it getting that balance right between oh, where I'm with one of the best guys in the world and the natural competitor in, competitor in me wants to sort of push hard and not get dropped or or try and drop him versus seeing these examples of people who can hold it back in training and and then save it for race day i think experience helps a lot uh like even now uh, in girona i do some run sessions with the guys like vincent louis yellow jen to you know these guys are running at a whole different level and i go out and do some sessions with them and I think as a person, especially like now, I am still very competitive when it needs to be. But away from that, I'm a very different person than who I was maybe four, five, six years ago. For me, it's just all about being able to turn that switch when it matters and very much away from sort of those sort of like key moments. It's just about staying relaxed and very much just focusing on what you actually need out of like the session or about anything in life. And so in that 27 period, 2017 period, when you were leading up into the world championships where everything was going great, what kind of stuff like specifically were you doing? How, how much volume sort of per week were you guys doing? Were you, were you a, a sort of little group who were doing huge volume or were you slightly on the, the lower end of things compared to other professionals? Uh, yeah, I suppose it's always difficult when you see that something like this because you you never know how people 
count their training. So uh, we were swimming like five times a week, doing like 22 to 24,000 meters. Probably was cycling like 15, 16 hours a week and then running like 95 to 100 kilometers. And that'd be like a big week, which I think averages like 30 or 32 hours. So big, but not sort of crazy because, yeah, in the past, I've did 40-hour training weeks quite consistently. In sort of 2014-15, I was doing like 40 hours a week. And when I say 40 hours a week, that was literally 40 hours of training. Like, if I went to the pool and swam 5,000 meters, I would count that as like a one or a 15 minutes sort of session because I equated 1,000 meters as 15 minutes, whereas... You get a lot of people that jump in a pool for two hours, but swim, I don't know, like three and a half thousand meters. But they count that as like two hours, where I'd count that as like 50 minutes. Something that sort of really stood out to me, like at that point in time for you, um, was was probably the shift in your bike riding. And, and I know that um, times in triathlon can be a little bit sort of almost arbitrary because of conditions on the course or, you know, whatever it is, how the race plays out. But um, like you sort of talked about in, in 2016, the, the year before you came, uh, before you ended up on the podium, you, you did have a really good run and, and were running through the field, but you know, we're a long way back on the bike and then came back in 2017 after that year of training with, you know, yarn and, and having those, that sort of unbroken, really consistent patch of training, like you talked about, and rode pretty much 20 minutes faster over the same course. And, and then we'll, we'll get into it. But the, the next year you went on to, to ride, I think even um, a little bit faster, five or six minutes faster again. So inside that 15 or 16 hours a week you were doing riding on the, on the bike, had that changed much from what you'd been doing in the past? Or was the reason you got so much stronger in that 12-month that period just because you were you know, riding side-by-side side with a guy like Jan who really had taken his bike to be pretty much the best in the sport um, over the 180 Ks? Uh, so there was two things in 2017. Uh, the first one was it's probably the first year that I really incorporated, incorporated a lot of strength work in the bike. I think in the past... Because maybe like 2015, 16, I was doing more volume on the bike. I was maybe cycling like 20 hours a week. And when you do that sort of volume along with running and swimming, a lot of it's done at very sort of low intensity. But also it's hard to do like a lot of strength work because your muscles just wouldn't recover from it. And even if you did do the strength work, your muscle, you wouldn't just, you wouldn't give your your body the time to sort of recover and actually sort of generate any strength from it. So I think 2017 was the first thing that I did consistent sort of over gear strength work, which helped massively. And then also I was the first thing that I'd actually did sort of any sort of proper aerodynamic testing was also 2017. So that was going to Derby in England and doing, I think twice I went there in 2017, to do aero testing and that was the first time I ever actually did anything like that. So I think that helped massively but training wise the biggest difference was it was just the strength work which I think is massively important especially towards like the later stages of an Ironman. And if you don't mind me asking sort of how how exactly would you implement that that over, over gear work on the bike? 
So like a standard session would be, we'd go to a hill and do like five by 12 minutes at 60 cadence. So that would be like a weekly sort of standard session. So you did like an hour at 60 cadence. And then also during like a longer aerobic ride, when you'd go out and ride for four or five hours, we'd also within the ride do another hours of work at sort of a low cadence. And that could be on a hill, that could be on the flat. It was just as it sort of worked into sort of the ride for the, for the day. So twice a week, we'd go out and do like an hour of overgear. And it would be at, at the highest, we'd be at 60 cadence, sometimes lower. And I've talked to a few people about this and, and gotten a, a few different uh, sort of opinions. When you were doing those like five by 12 minute, um, really low gear, uh, really low cadence, uh, really hard gear efforts um, uphill, are you doing them in the aero bars the whole, the whole time or are you not really worried about that, whether you're s- sitting up or down in the aero bars? No, I when, I was, when we were doing the hill reps, both me and Jan wouldn't be in aero, we'd just be on the bars. The only person I ever saw, because like we went up like quite a steep hill, and the only person I ever saw doing that session in sort of the aero position was Terenza Bazzoni came in to train with us for like two months. And he had probably the best leg strength I've ever seen in any athlete. He was incredible at sort of being at that sort of 55 to 60 cadence, pushing big power in the aero position, going uphill. But yeah, like I would be, yeah, I'd be out of aero position and he'd be next to me on the bars. But yeah, if I tried it, I'd probably just fall off the bike. <laughs> uh, that actually brings me to something I, I want to talk about. Um, and I was thinking about when I, when I knew I was going to have a chat to you, David, is that at that time, um, you guys had, I, I was particularly thinking of you three, you yourself, Jan Fredino and Terenzo Bazzoni. And at that time, you were all just racing so fast. Like I would say that um, arguably the, the best patch of, of your and yours and Terenzo's careers to date were were that, that, that patch where you're all training together. Jan was very good. He obviously had some very good performances at that time as well, um, as we know. How come you guys didn't sort of stay training together? Uh, well, for Terenzo, obviously, he had to get back to New Zealand. Uh, and, yeah, I think in Hawaii in 2017, it's tough with Terenzo because I think in Hawaii, his biggest problem is just sort of the heat and humidity. Because I would say sort of out of, out of the three of us, he was probably the the strongest athlete in 2017, especially sort of on the swim and the bike, especially the bike. He was a step above even Jan on the bike in 2017. But just obviously the sort of the environmental conditions in Hawaii, he struggles with. Uh, but yeah, Terenzo sort of had to go home to New Zealand, obviously with his wife and children. And yeah, with me and Jan, it, for me, it's sad, but Jan sort of made the decision after sort of, he went back to Australia uh, for six months and tw- after Hawaii 2017. And yeah, when he came back to Girona in 2018, it was, he made the decision that sort of, he no longer wanted to help me. And that sort of very much that sort of, that training relationship was done with. 
And that's, yeah, if I wanted to succeed, it was very much, obviously, he'd like to see me succeed, but he wasn't there to help me out at all. And do you just think that was as, as a result of you having such a, a great performance in that 2017 Ironman World Championships that, that also co- coincided with Jan, you know, having a few pro- problems and, and having, you know, uh, arguably his worst performance there that day? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you'd have to ask Jan if you really want the answer. Uh, yeah, for me, it was sad because, as I say, we had sort of a very good relationship and even now when we bump into each other, we'll still speak and stuff. And like, he was sort of one of the first people to congratulate me was and after Frankfurt last year when I came third, because maybe over sort of like the 18 month period leading up to Frankfurt, I wasn't having the best of times. And so yeah, I finally had a good performance last year in Frankfurt and he was one of the first people to message me and say, well done like it's great to see you back sort of being the athlete that you were so this thing like there's still a relationship there it's just if we see the sport as a business it's just not a business relationship anymore yeah and I guess it comes back to what we sort of already touched on that that you're both super competitive guys and and it definitely you know um, can can help performance but I guess maybe it can also be one of those things where you're like well He's now competition to me. I know, like, um, for for an example, a good example of that is is a regular that we have on this show, Tim Reed. When he started coaching Sam Appleton, um, Apo started to have you know become in Australia the the guy who who was then competing with Reedian, and and you know for for that patch when he first took him on it was actually beating him in most races and and Reedy was now finishing second and Apo was winning them and and Reedy had to make the decision to be like well I can't I can't coach you anymore because you know you're taking prize money from me and and you're taking potential race wins for me so I guess it is a reality of the sport where it's so beneficial to train with people um, and surround yourself with people who, who are doing the same thing because you're training so much and, and it can be a really sort of isolating um, profession if, you, if you're not surrounded by people, but you also, uh, on, the, on the flip side of that, can't really help people beat you in races, can you? It's not beneficial for your career. Yeah, I think it all depends on the athlete themselves, to be honest. Like I've seen... I th- for example, I'll take Mario Moller. Let's use Mario again. Even whilst he was the best in the world and he was very much like the key person in Joel's training group, he was more than happy for some of the other best athletes in the world to come on and join the training group. People like Vincent Louis. He sort of, he. I'm pretty sure when Vincent wanted to join his squad, Mario could have easily said no. But he didn't. He very much, and Vincent, as Vincent has said it himself, that like when he joined the training group, Vince was in sort of he was struggling to sort of a be motivated, but b find that sort of he knew he could be one of the best in the world, but he was sort of stuck on being like I don't know fifth or sixth in the world, and he always said like Mario could have sort of like pushed me down the ladder, but instead he sort of sort of put in his arm to help me back up, to help me up the ladder. So I think you give good examples of sort of Jan and Tim, but I'm seeing there's also the other side of that argument as well, where it's very much down to the athlete and sort of how they see themselves and how they see sport. 
And then um, if we can go into that race in 2017. So can you take me through the day and how it played out and, and, and maybe the lead into the day? Like, did you... Did you know you were going to have a, a breakout performance the way you did? Or I know you, you said South Africa was a breakout performance, but did, did you know you were going to have a breakout performance at the World Champs that year? And, and, and yeah, how did the day play out for you? I knew I was in very good shape, obviously, but it's Hawaii, so anything can happen. And, yeah, I think in the morning of the race, I was very relaxed, which for me is always a good sign. If I'm relaxed before race, it just means it's sort of I'm just confident in the training that I've done and there's no doubt. And yeah, I swam well. I think sort of we came out basically as one big group that year. I think maybe Josh Amber goes off the front, possibly, I'm not too sure. And in the bike ride I sort of held the front of the group until going up high V and then sort of that was the year that Sebastian, Cameron and Lionel got together very early on on the bike. And they sort of came charging by the sort of bottom high V, just perfectly the wrong time for me. Just, yeah. Well, it's the last sort of moment in the race when you want to see those guys is sort of going up high V. Uh, so yeah, I got dropped. And then coming back down high V, I sort of, I actually ended up it was just me and Patrick Lang together and Tyler Butterfield for a little bit. And we were sort of two men on the road, sort of trying to desperately chase back onto what was then the second group. So me and Patrick rode maybe 60 or 70 kilometers of the way home by ourselves. And then thankfully we caught up to like the second group just with like 10Ks to go before the run. And I think in the second group was like Josh Amberger was there Frederick Van Leerd was there, Boris Stein, and a few others. But we're still a good sort of six minutes behind Lionel and Cameron and Jan. And then, yeah, the run, uh, I left transition with Patrick, and I knew from previous years, well, the previous year that Patrick was, like, he just, I think the year before, he'd broken the course record for the run. And I just wanted to sort of stay with him for as long as possible without sort of killing myself. So that was like 15 kilometers. Uh, but by that point, we were sort of up into like, I think we're fifth or sixth position by that point. And yeah, to be honest, the rest of the race was just very much about trying to sort of catch anyone in front of me. And with like four kilometers to go, I saw Sebastian and I knew that was sort of the podium position. And even though it's something that I'd worked towards for, I'd say six months, but even longer than that, I'd never once sort of mentally put myself in that position where I'm actually running into the podium. So yeah, it just didn't really sit, didn't really feel too real to me, to be honest. And yeah. That was it. I got across the finish line in third. And to be honest, it took about 36, 40 hours for it to actually sink into me what had actually just happened. So I've got a few things that I want to ask about out of that race. And probably the first thing that, that comes to mind is what's it like when you're at the base of Harvey up that climb and and you see this group of Cam Worth, Lionel Sanders and Sebastian Kinlay, arguably the three best riders in triathlon at the time, uh, you know, riding with each other, coming past you. What what's going through your head at that time? How does it feel physically? Are you sort of are you sort of looking at them and being like, "Holy fuck, how are they riding that fast?" Like, 
or, or, or what, where's your head at in that moment? Yeah, to be honest, I'm glad you just swore so it tells me that I can swear. <laughs> yep, go for so, it. So basically, as they were going by, I was very much fucking hell. They weren't supposed to catch us this early. Like when I thought about the race beforehand, I knew sort of Cameron, Keenley, and Lionel would catch at some point. I just always thought that I'd get up to the highway turnaround point before they came past. And yeah, they came past and I tried for about 30 seconds to go with them, but I just knew that it just wasn't possible. And my the only thing that I hoped was that enough people tried to go with them that they just everyone that went with them would sort of pay for it later on. Because they were a very, very, very motivated group. I think I know in the next year sort of people rode quicker, but I think it's like an actual performance when you consider like the wins and stuff. What those three guys did there was I think it has to be probably the most impressive bike sort of performance in corner. Yeah, I, I I've thought about that before, so I'm that's interesting you brought that up. What is the best bike performance ever in Kona? And it's hard to go past Worth that year, isn't it? He was bloody impressive. But I reckon the other one that sort of gets forgotten about was Jan in 2019 that was probably equally as impressive. Yeah, for sure. Uh, obviously, sort of 2019, I sort of retired very early in the race, so I never really seen much of it. Uh, but yeah, Jan was obviously super impressive in 2019 at everything. But I just look back in 2017 and how those three guys just blew the race completely apart. And I don't think, I don't think people expected it was, I don't think people really expected them for all three of them to be together on the bike from basically the start. Yeah. It was funny how it played out because it hasn't played out like that since that was sort of the only year that, that, that just came together the way that exactly the way that those three guys would probably like it to. Um, yeah, it was it was bloody impressive to watch, and, and and then so you said it took a while to sink in. What's that moment like when you, as a triathlete, is just podiumed at the biggest rate race in the sport, um, and, and we're probably probably not expected to do that? What's that? What's that like? Is everyone just getting around you? Are you doing heaps of media? Uh, are you celebrating? What's the what is the forty eight hours after that race like? Uh, so yeah, so. Obviously, there's quite a lot of media afterwards and drug testing and stuff. And then my head's in complete mess. Of there's like a press conference after the race that all, the top five athletes have to go to. But and I'm sure like they probably told me after the race like three or four times about this press conference. But I just wasn't taking anything in. So anyway, a couple of hours later, maybe like half an hour before the press conference starts, and I've got my bike and I'm sort of. I'm just about to leave sort of the pier and sort of, have I got my bike? Yeah, maybe I've got my bike already. Yeah. So I'm just about to basically head home. Completely forgotten about this press conference and like I bump into Thorsten Raddle, who does tri rating and the PTO rankings. And he's like, oh, dude, congratulations, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, thank you. I just want to get home now and relax and have a beer. Like, yeah, yeah I'm just destroyed. I'll come back tonight at like midnight. And he, he just looks at me and he's like, David, this there's a press conference very soon and I'm pretty sure Iron Man want you to be there. And like, yeah, so thankfully, Torsten sort of saved me that sort of like disaster. Uh, but then, yeah, 
I even lose my phone at some point during that day. So yeah, I got back to the condo finally and realized that I didn't have a phone with me. And thankfully someone in Ironman found it somewhere. And I think I got the phone back the next day. But yeah, I think, to be honest, I was just a bit shell-shocked. Like, I've been in I've been in competitive sports since I was 10, as a swimmer to begin with, and I'd always wanted to be, initially to be an Olympian, then obviously to be at a world championships, and obviously ideally to be a world champion, but ever since the age of probably 10, I've always sort of wanted to be on that world championship podium. And it finally happened and I just didn't really know how to process it. Uh, I remember the day after the race, bumping into uh, Cup Vision, Glenn. You know Glenn in Australia, don't you? Yep. Uh, so like, and he, he said some comments, like, David, you don't seem too happy about it. Because I don't know why, we were just having a normal conversation and like he just he just stopped me after a few minutes. He was like, "You don't seem too happy about sort of being third in the world, David." He's like, and he was like, "For fuck's sake, David, or something like that." You were third in the world, but it still didn't really sink in. Like forty hours, me and my friend went. So in Hawaii, you can take out the little boat and do like the manta ray sort of where you float in the water and you look at the manta rays. So we were out in the water with like ten or fifteen other sort of tourists. So it's like dark and you're just like floating this water for like 30 minutes hearing nothing just looking down and I think it was finally then where it just like it sort of like finally sunk in and like I had to hold my back from like screaming like all I wanted to do at that moment was like scream but then I was like if I scream people will think something's wrong and I'm just going <laughs> to panic and this we're, we're, we're sort of like dangling off the boats it's going to be some sort of like drama so I can't scream but that was like when it finally sunk in was 48 hours. I was there just, all I wanted to do was extreme for excitement, but I just couldn't. Yeah, for sure. People would have thought there was a shark out there if you had done that. Yeah. But it's funny. Yeah. It's funny how that works, isn't it? How, like, because it's been such a, like a, maybe even seems like out of reach goal. I know that's how most people sort of talk about it for so long or like something they'd love to happen, but I don't know if anyone really expects it to happen that, that when it does happen, you just don't really know how to process it. And it's funny that for you, it's sort of all come together in that moment and, and your body just needed to sort of release that energy, but it sort of didn't know how to. It's Yeah, that's really interesting um, insight there. Hey, um, and then after the after that and and coming off that race and 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 obviously, as we've already talked about, your training environment shifting in 2018, you, you did go on to to have even probably a better performance the next year, if if not equally equally as good, where you where you finished on the podium again in third in in very similar fashion. What happened that year? How how did you come off that world champs? How was your confidence in your racing? Did your training change much? Yeah, I think so. Of you know, you sort of yeah. I was very confident in my ability, obviously. And again, it was one of these years that sort of 2018 was, 18 was funny in that like training always went perfectly. But then sort of my fault, my, I'd say my main race outside of Hawaii was Ironman Austria. And then I ended up getting food poisoning like three or four days before the race. So yeah, I did the race, but I ended up sort of walking for a part of the marathon just to sort of get my sort of, all I had to do was sort of validate my slot for Hawaii. 
so yeah, like training wise is very similar. Obviously, sort of, I wasn't training with Jan and Nick anymore. I was, yeah, I was training with a few guys that were sort of in Jonah for the summer. But yeah, training was sort of very similar, and I think sort of, I think yeah, twenty eighteen, I sort of arrived to Hawaii physically a better athlete, and yeah. I think 2018, my overall performance is a little bit better than 2017. I think in 2018, I made a sort of couple of tactical mistakes, which sort of cost me a little bit. But yeah, I think I was so fit that even with those sort of little mistakes, I was still able to end up in the podium. And yeah, I think sort of that whole two-year block, the sort of key thing was just momentum. Just everything sort of went in the right direction. And in that year, when you sort of um, got told by Jan that that hey, I, I I can't train with you anymore. I need I need to do my own thing, um, and so we'll have to go our separate ways. What happened then? Were you like, okay, well now I just need to find other people to train with, or did you sort of go, oh well, I've done that year. You know, I I I've proven to myself at the World Champs that that the training I did worked. So. I'll just do me and and I don't really need people around me or was it a really big priority for you because you had been in that world-class training um, sort of group that, that you sort of re- replicated that again in 2018 just with different people? Yeah, I think so with me sort of, I've performed well over the years training as a group, but also training by myself. So 2018, I trained quite a lot by myself, but then I'd also like me Living in a place like Girona, especially sort of these days, there's always a lot of athletes that come for like two or three months. And yeah, I would sort of uh, catch up and sort of do some sort of sessions with sort of people that were in town for like two or three weeks. Uh, Yeah, and sort of, I think the biggest change was sort of, in the past when I meet up with athletes, it was sort of very much a discussion of whose session you were going to do, whether it was mine or theirs, but... Yeah, sort of the one thing sort of the corner podium gave me in 2017 was that sort of everyone in 2018 that sort of came to Jonah sort of they were very much sort of more than happy to sort of do my session than anything. And then like something I've always wondered about is when you're in Girona and you're surrounded by, you know, this history of, of endurance sports, are you exclusively training with triathletes? Because I know there's a lot of cyclists who live there, world-class world tour riders. Are you... Are you thinking to yourself, well, fuck, I'll go jump in with them for some for, for some cycling because they're all here and, and I know it's going to make my, my cycling better? Or are you the kind of guy who only really just trains with triathletes and, and doesn't sort of mix with the guys who do swimming, riding and running as individual sports? Uh, so it's a bit of a mixture. Like I don't really train with any sort of world tour cyclists. Uh, I have some mates that sort of race sort of Probably continental level, I'd call it. The the race for like in Spain, the race for like a couple of the good Basque teams, and in Spain, sort of, if you want to become a professional, you have to generally start out racing in the Basque country. Uh, and then, sort of, obviously, sort of, yeah, I train with Yella and Martin Van Ryl sometimes, Vince. But yeah, I suppose I also just train with friends. To be honest, I have friends that just sort of ride the bike for fun and. Yeah, I train with them and they just have sort of normal jobs and stuff. Uh, yeah. And the thing is, like, as much as Girona is now a very popular place, when I moved there, there wasn't really anybody. And sort of, 
the people that I rode with at the time was just like the local sort of cyclists. And yeah, these are the guys that I still sort of cycle with uh, nine years later. And then that 2018 year was obviously the year that, that I talked about in the introduction where you went 8.01.09 at Kona. Uh, and, and like I said, the, the closest anyone's come to breaking eight hours without ever actually breaking it and the fifth fastest time uh, at the world champs of all time. How does that sit with you? Is that a proud thing that, that hey, I've got the fifth fastest time ever here at the, the hardest race in the world? Or, or is it like it, it, because it was so close, does it sort of frustrate you in a way? No, it doesn't frustrate me at all, to be honest. Like, I've been asked that question a couple of times, and for me, I don't really care. Like, I came third twice in the World Championships. Like, as a kid growing up, you never dream about, I really wish I could do this time at a World Championships. It's sort of, you dream about, I really wish I sort of got a gold medal at the World Championships. I really wish I'm on the podium. It's not like, I really wish I go seven fifty nine fifty nine and I come third. <laughs> you don't you don't really care about the time as long as you get the medal. Yeah, and you said like I sort of I agreed that from the outside looking in that that, that twenty eighteen performance from you was was even better than your twenty seventeen performance, even though you you walked away with the the bronze medal both times. But what were the differences inside that twenty eighteen race versus the twenty seventeen race that you just took us through? Uh, I think the biggest thing was. In 2017, I was very much at the front coming out of the water. In 2018, I wasn't. I was sort of behind. There was like 10, 12 guys off the front. And that was... It was mainly down to my sort of own stupidity. Like, I remember we were going out sort of... I mean, it was just maybe like 50 metres before the turnaround point. I was sort of the last person on the front group. And in front of me was Braden Curry. And in front of him was Tim O'Donnell. And all of a sudden, like, there was, like, this sort of gap between Braden and Tim. But I sort of told myself, oh, it's okay, like, Braden can catch this up. Like, this is, like, 18, 1900 metres into the race. Like, by this point, you're sort of settled down and sort of you're in the group. So, like, I was very much in the front group. And then all of a sudden, yeah, we got sort of put around the tunneling point And that sort of little gap all of a sudden grew to, like, 10 or 15 metres and. To be honest, I just sort of hesitated and it was stupid of me because, yeah, I come from an ITU background and it's very much an ITU if there's a gap, you fill it. But I just sort of hesitated and the next thing I knew, I saw me and Braden with like two or three others were coming out of the water like 75, 80 seconds behind the front group. So, yeah, it was very much sort of, in 2017, I was right at the front from the start and sort of 2018, you're already sort of on the back foot to begin with and then was the bike different that year because those those sort of uber bikers like we talked about didn't get together like they did the year before and 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 set that crazy pace that that no one could really go with yeah i think so so like 2018 i again like the first 80 90 kilometers i rode very badly because again like me and braden came out the water with starkovich and patrick lang and four or five others and Half of those guys then went on and sort of bridged straight up to the front group and I just couldn't find the power early on in the bike. It wasn't until like halfway through the bike that I sort of found sort of my biking legs and stuff and I averaged actually more watts on the second 90Ks than I did on the first 90Ks that year. And yeah, I was, I think 2018, I sort of, I think the thing that saved me was 
there wasn't that crazy big pace. So even though I was never in the front group, the front group never got that big a gap that they usually do, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then when you got off the bike that year, um, how did that differ from the year before? You went on to run very similar times and, and do a very similar thin thing where you ran, ran through the field and, and eventually fought your way onto the podium. Did it play out very similar to the year before on the run? No, I think it was a bit different. Because again, like 2017 was when me and Patrick just caught up with the group before transitioning. I sort of hung on to the back of it for the last 10 case to recover. Whereas like 2018, I very much, I knew I had to keep on pushing the group that I was with. So I think it was basically meantime, we just sort of took turns sort of over the last 60, 70 days, just trying to get the group to keep moving forward. And you're in a group and like Lionel was there and Lionel was having a bad day. And so he wasn't doing anything. Sebastian was having a disaster. So he just sat in the group and you had like, you had a lot of guys that are usually stronger riders, but they just, weren't sort of they either gave up for the day or they just weren't feeling it so yeah so I very much sort of 2018 sort of pushed the pace sort of as hard as I could sort of over the last 40 50 k's but yeah I remember sort of getting sort of a couple hundred meters towards transition and everyone sort of starts overtaking you that sort of been behind you for the last sort of 80 k's they sort of decide to come by you with like 10 meters to go and yeah I remember sort of I left transition with Lionel and Lionel I'd passed like 70 k's before and I hadn't seen him since uh, the group of 10 or 12 was me and Lionel were the first ones to leave and we left side by side and he started to push the pace and I just remember saying to myself no you fucking don't not after the last hour and a half and I just like I was just very aggressive the first 5 or 10k of that run and really sort of started to chase the group down in front of me and I ran fast over the first 15Ks in 2017 following Patrick, but I think I ran even faster in 2018. Just a little bit of anger, but just sort of desperation of wanting to sort of get back with the leaders. That's, that's a really interesting point that I want to talk about is your mindset through the run, um, uh, like through the marathon at a world champ. So this race is crazy. It's it's super hot. It's it's a hard course. It's everyone's there to win. So people people race hard. They they ride the bike hard. They swim hard. They they run the first part of the marathon hard. The guys who end up on the podium really deserve it because everyone is there trying to to be the best version of themselves on that day. So the guys who have good races have very good races. Um, so where is your head at through the marathon and? And is it a roller coaster? Do you have like massive ups, massive downs? Is there really low patches you have to work through, or or those two years where you where you got it right on the run were were you quite sort of calm and relaxed the whole time on the run, or or like you you started to talk about were were you angry and then were you flat or like where's your head at throughout that whole marathon? Because I assume it's a very long marathon. Um, I assume it's the the kind of run that if you compared it to just a marathon that you would do fresh, feels like it probably lasts twice as long as that in your head. Yeah, I think so. God, I think Hawaii is, it destroys you mentally, even if you have a great race, to be honest, because it's such, mentally, it's, it's a, even if you have a great day, it's still such a roller coaster. And I very much leave Hawaii sort of, physically but also mentally destroyed 
especially like 2018, because I ran myself into third position with like 10 kilometers to go. I'd passed like Tim O'Donnell and Braden Curry, who were sort of fighting out amongst themselves. And I quickly sort of, I very quickly got then got ahead of them and I had, I don't know, like a minute gap quite comfortably. But then all of a sudden with like seven, eight kilometers to go, I very much just wanted the race to finish then because I started to really sort of fall apart. I think those guys sort of thought the podium was like gone because I was ahead of them and they start started to be a little bit more tactical between themselves. And I think that sort of, if one of them had sort of fully committed to being like, okay, we're going to chase him down, then they might have got me. Because, yeah, even the guys that have a great racing opponent, it's still sort of, you have sort of a lot of low points, even more so than in any other Ironman. And do you have like a a tool or, or something that you use to get through those low points? Yeah, I think, especially sort of on the bike, it's very much sort of, I tell myself that you just don't know what will happen further down the line. And that by doing your best at that possible moment in time, you're giving yourself a much better chance to succeed later on. And I think that's sort of a key in sort of any Ironman, any endurance sport, is that when you're going through a bad patch, it's very easy to give up or not to try 100%. Whereas I just tell myself and I have my mindset that even though sort of say in your head, you'd always dreamed of being in Hawaii and you're pushing, I don't know, we'll just say numbers like 300 watts because that's what you think you can. But then you go through like a bad patch after three hours and all of a sudden like you're pushing 270. I think a lot of people then just give up because like, ah, shit, I'm feeling bad now. Whereas my mindset is like, well, this is the best I have right now. So if I can push 270 watts, it's a hell of a lot better than sort of just giving up and sort of, doing 200 watts or 150 watts, it's very much sort of always trying to do your best in that possible situation at that time. Because if you do that, then 10, 15 minutes, one hour later, all of a sudden your legs might come back and you're a lot closer to where you want to be than you would have been if you just sort of freewheeled it in. And then I guess off all of this conversation, I want to talk about the present. So um, this, this race we're talking about was four years ago and, and you're on a real high of, of, of being the on the podium two years in a row at Kona and, and having the success you did in races outside of that. So where's triathlon for you now? What 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 are your goals now? How how are you traveling now? So yeah, so now I'm St. George's three and a half weeks away and it's great to finally have our world championships again. So right now I'm a hundred kilometers sort of up in the mountains of St. from St. George in a place called Cedar City. It's where Lucy Charles was last year before 70.3 World Championships in St. George. And I'm here with Bart Ernotz, who was second in Hawaii in 2018, and then another Belgian athlete. And so it's just the three of us. And yeah, we've rented sort of an apartment and we're training here for the month. And yeah, I very much think that I can still be one of the best athletes in the world. And yeah, obviously sort of, because of COVID, I've just sort of the last sort of two or three years world championships wise has sort of been lost. And yeah, I am not, I'm getting a bit older now and sort of my body's sort of different than it was sort of four or five years ago. And sort of I've had to sort of adapt and change training, but 
I still think I have a couple more years in me where I can, especially in Hawaii, but I also think in St. George, I have a good chance of being up there at sort of the business end of the field. And so how has your training changed? I mean, again, if you don't mind taking us inside it, like the, the world champs, um, they're three and a half weeks away. And, and I so assume most of your work has been done. Um, so if you can tell us how, how, how it's been going and, and maybe, you know, what have you been doing? How has it changed? So when I'm in Jordan, I still sort of meet the guys like ride to your guys, like Vince and stuff, like a one really hard one session a week. And for me, that's sort of like my really intense session as well. And I do it because, well, I think you get a lot of benefits from sort of really keeping your top end speed up. But I also, I just really enjoy doing it. And yeah, I know sort of, maybe that doesn't sound very professional that I do a training session because I enjoy just doing it. But that's sort of one of the reasons. But I think apart from that, it's sort of very much, I've had to learn that sort of, I can't do the same amount of intense sessions a week than I used to because the body takes a little bit longer to recover. So now it's sort of very much about learning to put sort of a limit on the amount of intensity I do a week. And yeah, even more to sort of focus more on sort of like the strength sort of aerobic stuff in training. I think that's sort of the big difference is very much sort of learning that sort of there's only so much intensity I can do in a week and sort of uh, working on sort of developing that strength endurance even more. Leading into a, a race like this, the World Championships, um, you know, we haven't had a, a, an Ironman World Championships in a couple of years. And throughout that period, it, it sort of seemed like some new guys have come on the scene and, and there's been some pretty crazy performances. Are you watching your competition? Are you one of those guys who is watching it and thinking about how the race might unfold or thinking about, you know, this person being in the race might affect the race dynamics this way, so I have to do this or, or any of that? Uh, I do a little bit. Like, there has been obviously sort of the last two or three years sort of, you know, they say like a year is a long time in the sport. So three years is like a lifetime, let's be honest. Like, three years in sport is sort of, is such a long period of time. Uh, so yeah, obviously there's sort of new guys like, there's no, the Norwegians are here, you got Sam Long racing. So yeah, you have to sort of, think of how that will affect the race dynamics but it's also about sort of realizing like what is the best sort of how do I give myself the best chance like for example like we take St. George in three and a half weeks I know I'm a good climber on the bike but I'm no I know I'm not the best so for me it would be stupid if say say for Somehow me and Gustav Eden arrive at Snow Canyon after racing for five hours together. And he's all of a sudden decides to go for it and push hard. Me trying to keep with him would be a stupid idea because I'm, I'm honest with myself and I know that this guy can climb better than I can. So, yeah, it's very much, I think about race dynamics, but it's also thinking about how do I make sure that sort of what gets myself my best performance isn't affected by the other people's sort of abilities and how they affect the dynamics of the race? Maybe putting yourself aside, um, trying to think of the race without 
thinking about it from your lens, which is, I assume, very hard to do given that that's what you're dedicating your life to at the moment. But do, who do you see as the favourite to win this race? And, and if if you were to put your money on someone, yourself aside, who, who was going to win, where would it be? I think after Oceanside, I'd be split between probably Gustav and Lionel, to be honest. Uh, I think sort of Lionel, he had a phenomenal run in Oceanside. I think the bike course in St. George suits him because, yeah, over the 70.3 here in St. George, he's been incredible. And Gustav has obviously won 70.3 World Championships here last year. And in his first Ironman, he sort of knocked out of the park. So, yeah, I'd say those two guys and then Christian. And, yeah, it's probably... And we'll just see Sam Long as well. And there you go. I've, I've said four names. He's probably... One of them will win it. And me. And me. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm not supposed to, supposed to put myself in it, but I'll put myself in it just because to serve my ego. Yeah, yeah. It's too hard not to, but it's also it's yeah. also very hard just to say one name, isn't it? Because you you have to you don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, it's it's very difficult. And again, we've not had a world championships now for two and a half years, and yeah, I know I've said it before, but like that length of time in sport, it's just massive. Like it's such a long period of time in sort of elite sport. Yeah, well, the common link between everyone you said is that if it was any of those guys, it would be the first time they've ever won an Ironman World Championships. Yeah, and well, this is the thing, like, there's not many people that have won an Ironman World Championships that's racing. Yeah, maybe, well, we don't know if Jan's racing or not, so maybe Jan, Patrick's out with injury. So apart from that, it's Sebastian. And this is the thing, I think, yeah, there's been a lot of people sort of retire as well over the last couple of years who've either been world champion or been in the podium in Hawaii. And yeah, it's sort of, there's a lot of new people. Something I, I sort of want to ask you about, and, and I haven't actually really talked about this on this podcast yet. And I, I've talked to a lot of um, professional triathletes and, and a lot of guys who have won world championships and been at the pointy end of the sport. But I'm asking you, and I, I sort of made a decision to ask you about this because, from the from everything I've consumed from you, I I, I see you as a very st- almost straight down the line kind of says it how it is guy, uh, and I love how you you'll get asked a question and and you'll just you'll just say it as it is. I, it's 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 really the main reason I asked you on this, as well as loving you know the way you race. I just I just love how you you, you say what's on your mind. Um, and so with, with controversial topics, like I like people like that because they'll sort of just say it, say it how it is from their mind. Um, in a sport like triathlon, how big a part do you think doping plays in it in, in the current day and age? Uh, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we said we had a completely clean sport. It's sad to say, but yeah, for sure, like the doping controls in Ironman, they're just not the same as, say, in cycling or even in ITU. Like, I've been out of tested competition maybe twice in the last sort of 12, 14 months. So this is it. It's like, I think a lot of people like to bury their heads in the sand and say, oh, we're a super clean sport because nobody gets caught. But the reality is, is we aren't tested enough. And a lot of that's just down to money. Like, I get, I used to get tested a lot more when I was raising ITU and receiving funding from sort of the lottery, the UK lottery. When I was doing ITU, you're on like the sort of performance program. 
I used to get tested maybe five or six times more when I was like a top 15, top 20 ITU athlete than when I was back-to-back podium athletes at the World Championships in Ironman. And that's just the reality of it. And that's it. Like, yeah, there's for sure athletes that dope in the sport. And yeah, I don't understand the mindset of athletes that would want to do it. But I'm stupid. I'd be stupid to say that there aren't athletes who happily will dope in our sports. And I think that's just the reality of it. Probably two follow-ups from that that I'm, I'm really curious about is having, having heard you say that from your experience of how much you've been testing and, and you know, you've been in the sport forever now and you've been in endurance sport forever, how easy, if you were really committed, if you, if you had the finances necessary and really wanted to, in your, in your opinion, how easy would it be to get away with, with doping in, in long course triathlon at the moment? I think some of it vary, would vary per country. So like 50% of the tests that I get are actually from still from British Triathlon because they still want me tested even though I receive no sort of government support. They still insist that I get tested by them so they'll send someone to test me. But yeah, in general, I think... If you have the money and you had the right contacts and you're in the right environment, it would sort of be pretty easy, to be honest. Like, yeah, as I say, sort of, I think in total, I've been tested three times in 12 months. Yeah. I think two out of competition tests and once in Frankfurt last year. So, yeah, I think it varies massively by country. But, yeah, like, yeah, it still exists. And, yeah, that's just, that's the sad reality of elite sport is that there's always going to be people desperate enough to do the unethical thing. And then I guess the only other thing I'm really curious about inside of that is, is, and I'm not going to ask you to name names. I wouldn't, I would never get you to do that, but have you ever looked at some performances in maybe the last two, three, four years and thought to yourself, oh, I'm suspect on that? Yeah. <clears throat> For sure, like, there's always been, like, and I don't even, like, like, sometimes you see an athlete who's all of a sudden, like, even though they've been in the sport for a long time, all of a sudden, like, made this sort of massive sort of jump in performance. And that's not necessarily even, like, the people that are winning the race. Like, I look at sort of Christian and Gustav, probably the two greatest triathletes in sport as a whole right now. I mean, between, like, ITU, Sins Point 3 and Ironman. And I look at those two guys and I know how they'll probably be tested more than anyone in the sport by far because they're on the ITU, they're in Norway sort of traffic federation. Those guys will get tested more than anyone else in the sport. So I'm not saying like because you're the best in the world that you're doping. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like there's performances over the year where like all of a sudden like someone who has been pretty average makes this sort of massive sort of jump forward and yeah they always sort of bring some sort of curiosity we'll say and then um i'll move away from that but but thanks for for giving us some insight there it's um it's sort of interesting and a little bit sad in a way that 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 someone you know as as in the sport as you believes that it would be super easy to get away with if you if you really wanted to and were committed to and and acknowledges that it probably happens and i mean i I guess it's 
Yeah, and the one thing I say is, and it does vary depending on what country you're in, and also whether you're who's testing you as well. Because if you're federate, if you're part of like a federation who tests heavily, then it's a lot harder. Speaking of uh, of awesome performances. Uh, on their day, this is a question I, I like to ask. I'm, I'm really fascinated on as a fan of the sport. Um, I, you know, you've mentioned how you trained with Jan, who a lot of people see as the greatest of all time. And and then you mentioned how you were running, you know, 30 minutes and 30 seconds off the off the bike for 10K in ITU. But then there was guys like Alistair out there running, you know, 29, 20, and, and you're a minute 10 off the, off the pace running, you know, three minute per K for a 10K. Um, who is the guy that you've raced or you've seen and and on their best day you've thought there's no way I could ever beat that person? Uh, I think Alistair before 2012 London Olympics. I would say like maybe not this. He was probably like, to be honest like going into the 2012 Olympics apart from like Richard Varga. He was the best swimmer in the world. He was the best cyclist in the world, and he was the best runner in the world. Like, there's no way in hell he was not going to win that race. Which I think, sort of, when you talk about Olympics, that's an incredible thing uh, to say. So, yeah, I'd say Alistair going into 2012, I think, sort of, even if you put him up against, say, Christian Christian Blumenfeld, at his peak, Alistair would have been. Uh, And then, sort of, Ironman, I'm not too sure, to be honest. Uh, yeah, because like Jan's obviously incredible, but there's still like weaknesses. Whereas when I looked at Alistair in 2012, he was by far the best athlete of basically everything in the world going into London Olympics. I'm glad you've said that because uh, if you go back and listen to episodes of this podcast, I've said it about four times, I think, on different episodes. Oh, okay. The best performance in triathlon history was the, the 2012 Olympics by Alistair Brownlee. This is the thing, and I'd say the second best performance was Javier Gomez, who got second, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I think, sort of, it was, yeah, like, you have to realize that this was before Super Shoes, and it was a very accurate 10K it was spot on 10 kilometers. And I think Alistair ran like 29 flat with some celebrations and Javier ran like 29, 30 or something, which he put some super shoes on them and they're 30 seconds faster. Yeah. That was a crazy time in, in, in short course triathlon. I, like you said, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's as high a standard right now at, at the top, at, as you know, the top few guys as what it was back then. And then you compare it to Ironman. If you go to Ironman in 2012 versus Ironman in 2022, like it's not even the same sport. You know, the guys who were who were competing for the win at Kona in 2012 would not finish top 10 um, in 2022 this year. But if you get if you grabbed Alistair and, and Javier and, and Johnny from 2012 at, at ITU and chucked him into the Olympics last year, you know I, they they would have won. So it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and I think that's just like any sport. There's always sort of like you say like the golden era, uh, but yeah, I think sort of that sort of paid for ITU was, you know, it was crazy. Like the whole depth was crazy. Like, I think it was in the test event in 2011 that you had to run under 31 minutes to get into the top 30, which is just crazy. Whereas, like, in most races, that would get you sort of, like, top 10. Even now, like, nowadays, I'd get you top 10. 
the other thing I have to ask because I've talked to a few people about it and I've, I've sh- shared some stories on here before is uh, you were racing, you know, with those guys back then. Um, how many, if any, uh, times were you on the receiving end of a famous, al- famous Alistair Brownlee spray on the bike? Yeah, like, to be honest, like, me, me and Alistair had many falling outs. Uh, yeah, like, we don't really get on. Uh, <laughs> I respect him as an athlete. Like, you have to respect him as an athlete. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that's sort of the reality is that sort of me and Alistair don't really get on. We'll say hello to each other. But, yeah, I'm not the guy that will fake friendships and stuff. And neither is Alistair. So, yeah, that's sort of it. It's like, yeah, he's a ruthless competitor. I very much respect him. That that's why I'll happily say that sort of performance-wise, he's delivered the best performance ever in triathlon. But yeah, I'm never going to sort of go down to the pub and have a beer with him. And does that just stem from things that have been said when you've been racing each other? Yeah, racing. Like we also train together and stuff, and we're in the same environment. Uh, so yeah, like yeah, just sort of. I think it's sort of yeah. He's just got that sort of ruthless sort of personality and. For me, I don't really like to be around that. I sort of, I think, I always think, what do you have to be selfish? But you don't need to be a dick. Yeah, that's sort of what I believe. There's a lot of dick in sport, dicks in sport as well, and that's sort of, yeah, it's the reality of the sport is that there's some really nice guys, but there's also people that are just sort of ruthless and sort of will do anything to sort of get to the top. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and it's a, it's quite like interesting to hear that versus how you talked about the you and Yarn situation where you were very friendly, like you're, you're good friends and, and it just got to the point where to, to like it, from the outside, it, it just sounds like you got a little bit too good, which is which is almost a, a compliment in a way. It's like, hey, I yeah. can't train with you because you're too good, but we're still friends versus what you're saying with you and Alistair, who Alistair is a ruthless competitor, you know, known as being as, as competitive as anyone in, in the sport. Um, and, and like I've sort of said in the podcast earlier, I, 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 I see you as one of those guys as well. Who's, who's a bit of a, who's a bit of a competitive bastard. So, um, it's yeah. funny how that can work in, in training situations and sometimes yeah. it works and sometimes it, it ends up in, in big blowups and that sort of thing. Yeah. And the thing is like me and I, like, I very much respect him as an athlete and like we fell out like 10 years ago and obviously sort of we're both probably different people. So like nowadays, so you never know, but yeah, like that's life. You're never going to be sort of best mates with everyone, but yeah, I sort of, yeah, as an athlete sort of, you can't sort of, yeah, ultimately he is the best guy to ever raise IT here. Do you think he would have been as good as what he what he was if if he hadn't have been like that? Was there like a was that ruthless edge that he had in training where where I'm assuming he he didn't like things being done that that weren't his way and he didn't like getting beaten and and that sort of thing? Is that is that also what just made him you know the best athlete triathlete on the planet at his at his best? I don't know. I think sort of it people get a lot of motivation from being like that. I think it all just comes down to sort of personality types. Again, I've seen sort of, say, like Mario, three-time world champion, but even Javier Gomez, who's a very different personality to Alistair. I think sort of with Alistair, just sort of very much sort of motivated him at the time. And he was sort of obviously super driven. And yeah, I think sort of, 
yeah, it's, it's difficult to be honest whether to answer that question. I suppose it's sort of one of those things that you never really will know. I think that's uh, that's a pretty interesting note to, to end on. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and having a chat, David. Uh, it was, you know, as insightful as, as any conversation I've sort of had on this podcast. And, and like I said, I think that is just because you're someone who sort of says things how he sees them. And, and, and in a professional athlete, that's, that's – um, that's you know that's <laughs> that's what makes people love you and and I, I know you have a big fan base because of the the reason you know because you're like that so yeah I think I can't thank you enough for coming on and 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 just just being being you and and saying things how they were and 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 being so open about your training and, and racing and and I'm really looking forward to to watching you in St George and I um I I try not to be too biased, but but I really do hope you're one of those. Guys. Oh, you want you want me to win, don't you? You you want me to win? <laughs> I definitely want you to have a good race. That's for sure. I would uh I would love to see it. Thank you very much. We will see what happens. And if you do have a good race, just come back on for a chat because don't forget about us. Don't get too big for us. I won't. But just remember that Vegas is only two hours from St George. So you know if I. <laughs> If I do well, you, uh, you might find me there. And at least then if you're if you're on the casino floor 48, 48 hours after the race, you can actually scream. There's there's nothing to, that would stop you doing that there. Sure, it's better than sort of, yeah, being in the ocean in Hawaii. <laughs> you probably still wouldn't be the, the loudest person in a Vegas casino. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. All right. Good luck. I'll, uh, I'll be keeping an eye on you. So when things get hard out there, remember that. Thank you. See you, David. Soon. Thanks, mate. Bye.